Next week, the 30th of November, Sue Allen will be giving another of her celebrated lectures, this time on crepe paper fairy tales. I have no very clear notion as to what a fairy tale is in crepe paper, but I expect to next week and to be very pleased with myself for having learned. Sue Allen is one of our most reliable speakers. On the 7th of December, those of you who are friends will have received just a new Friends of the Book Arts Press newsletter announcing this change or are just about to do so. We will not be having a sneak preview of How to Collate a Book, the latest Book Arts Press videotape, for the compelling reason that it has not yet been written yet, although it expects to be quite soon. It was sidetracked for another videotape, a brief one, on the past, present, and prospects of the School of Library Service. That compelling subject produced an equally compelling videotape, I'm sure you'll all agree, which, even without seeing it, which will be shown as a preview on the 7th of December, along with a number of the videotapes that we've been buying lately on book art subjects, which a number of you have not yet seen, I think. These include the Libra Prim videotapes on the influence of history on French bookbinding and on early woodcuts, particularly in French books. I like to say in my classes that the history of the book is the history of the French book, but the French really believe that. We have also acquired a number of other videotapes, and we'll be showing a string of them, as announced in the Friends newsletter on the 7th of December between 5 and 8 o'clock, and we'll have a list of those next week for anybody who's interested. Finally, on Monday the 14th of November, of December, excuse me, will be the third Saul M. Malkin Memorial Lecture in which Marjorie Wynne speaks on her life in rare books at Yale over the past 50 years. All of these will be Monday nights at 6 o'clock. It is our great pleasure tonight to welcome back Ian Willison, who has spoken from this platform many times. And on this occasion, he speaks not as erroneously announced in some of my publicity uh, printing the history of the book, but on the history of the book and providing a publishing history for it in England. Ian Willison. Thank you. Now, I am being asked to talk about the uh, history of the book in Britain Project, uh, um, and uh, how it relates to um, general trends in humanities research. Now, I have to admit at the outset that this title is uh, pretentious. Now, that's not because the um, history of the book is not going to be written, but because the factors that are determining our project are still only beginning to show themselves fully. And I therefore have to speak not in any way definitively, but informally as a participant very much in work in progress. 
Now, I need first to establish and spend half of my time, indeed, establishing the context of our project, for it is the context, I think, that is at the moment the most volatile of the factors that we have to deal with. Now, the past decade or so has seen two major and not entirely unconnected developments. First, a widely felt sense of to put it mildly, radical change in the world of the book. The most conspicuous aspect recently being the size and the frequency of mergers and conglomeratizations associated with somewhat larger-than-life figures such as Rupert Murdoch, Robert Maxwell, and in this country, William Jovanovich. Secondly, there are a number of large-scale, multi-volume, collaborative histories of the book in various countries, either planned, commenced, or in one case, even completed. Here in the United States, the American Antiquarian Society is the base for a proposed two- or perhaps three-volume history of the book in American culture up to 1876. Supported by the National Endowment for the Humanities and under the editorship of Professor David Hall, an intellectual historian at Boston University. In Germany, a project has now been launched by the Historical Commission of the Book Trade Association to bring up to date, in five volumes, the old Kapgold Friedrich History of the German Book Trade, the Geschichte des Deutsches Buchwesens, which stopped at 1870. This will be completed by work on the history of libraries in Germany, promoted by the German equivalent of the NEH, the Deutsche Forschungsgemeinschaft. The Lenin State Library in Moscow, so we were informed this summer, is well into a multi-volume history of the book in the USSR since 1917. But undoubtedly, the leading project is the French Histoire de l'édition française from the Middle Ages to 1950, now published, complete, in four luxurious volumes and soon to be accompanied by four similar volumes on the Histoire des bibliothèques de la France. Now, in general, there is a good deal of mutual awareness, collaboration, and common doctrine between these projects. And in planning the latest of them, the history of the book in Britain, we base our prospectus and we base our claim for resources on the growing belief that a new scholarly subject matter is emerging. It is these general implications which I must now pursue a little before going on in the second half of my paper to give a summary of the history of the book in Britain Project itself. Now, there is, of course, nothing new in narrative histories of the book, or perhaps I'd better say histories of book trade and publishing. In Britain, we have had the standard account by F. A. Mumby, first published in the 30s, and in America there have been a series of histories, the most recent of which, a four-volume work of over 2,500 pages by John Tebbel, was finished as recently as 1981. Nevertheless, these by and large single-author narratives represent what, if I use a phrase made famous by Herbert Butterfield, I'm tempted to call the Whig interpretation of the history of the book. Typically written by former trade professionals, Mumby had worked for the Times Literary Supplement, and Ian Norrie, his reviser, owns the High Hill Bookshop in Hampstead. Tebble has worked for the American Mercury and E.P. Dutton. Their narrative sequence is constructed, as it were, from the inside and progresses casually and, indeed, reassuringly, somewhat in the manner of Lord Tennyson's freedom broadening steadily down from precedent to precedent. This has two serious consequences, I think. 
The first, which would not have surprised Herbert Butterfield, is the inability to account satisfactorily for the current critical state of affairs in the book trade itself, or come to that of any previous crisis in the book trade. And this is, after all, part, not only the actors, the publishers, booksellers, authors, but also of the reader's own current experience of the world of the book. The Whig narrative tends to end in a simple, and forgive the phrase, cop-out. Thus, in John Tebbel's scheme, the conclusion and meaning of the present crisis, and I quote, remains to be seen. Well, indeed it does, but that isn't perhaps saying very much. Secondly, the narrative tends to be, so to speak, enclosed, treating only incidentally, if at all, the non-commercial elements in the world of the book, such as libraries and learning, and also treating only incidentally other forms of text, such as newspapers, maps, and the audiovisual media in general, which are also part of the reader's own experience of the content of books, the text. Finally, behind and beneath text in its widest significant significance, Whig narrative tends to treat only incidentally, if at all, the whole world of scholarship, culture, and even politics, with which, again, with which, again in the reader's experience, the world of the book and text interacts. The motivation behind the, if I call it, new history of the book, then, is, in the first place, to establish itself as a scholarly subject field in its own right by reducing a present and a pressing common experience to satisfactory intellectual order to canonize it, we might fashionably say, and then, by the same token, to enlarge, vitally, general historical understanding. What of the particular new trends, if any, in hum humanities research involved in this new history of the book? The first trend to point up is that the new history of the book is not only about the book trade and libraries and scholarship, but itself depends on an unprecedented unprecedentedly intimate collaboration between the trade, librarians, and scholars. Thus, in Britain, one of the essential preconditions of our project is the eagerness of our book trade, not only publishers and booksellers, but even the coyest animal of the lot, literary agents, to deposit their archives in research libraries for intensive and unconditional use by scholars. In particular, the immediate occasion for the history of the book in Britain was the deposit of the Longman archive in Reading University and the invitation by Longmans to Asa Briggs to write an exhaustive history of the firm. Secondly, research librarians are now eager to provide another and highly staff-intensive precondition for the new history of the book, that is, machine-readable databases of the printed and manuscript evidence that not only serve individual in-house purposes for individual research libraries, but given the inevitably distributed nature of printed and manuscript archives, are of necessity interconnected by online networking. Finally, scholars themselves are willing to fulfill the third precondition, working intensively and over long periods of time in the research library with its databases rather than in their university or study. Hence, the location of many of the new projects in research library centres such as the American Antiquarian Society, that I've already mentioned, or Wolfenbüttel in West Germany for the Cupgold Friedrich project, or indeed the British Library in London for the History of the Book in Britain project. These three intersecting interests are, in turn, the function of new 
or newish trends within scholarship, research libraries and the book trade, which I must now review briefly before attempting to show how they affect the history of the book in Britain. Now, I might say that the scholarly concern with the world of the book and text has ascended through three phases, each of which, however, still persists in full force. The first phase, which we may call the strictly bibliographical phase, in fact, originated relatively soon, uh, soon after the actual invention of printing, with the interest in so-called typographical antiquities. But it was first systematized in the course of the professionalization of humanistic studies by the great philologists and historians of the last century, interested primarily in the external facts of the history of the book, as, from their point of view, corrupting the transmission of texts. Philological scholars of this sort worked closely with, and in some cases were identical with, the first generation of professional research librarians, Case in point being the virtual inventor of incunable studies in Britain, Henry Bradshaw, who was co-founder of the medieval and modern language school at Cambridge and at the same time the university librarian. The basic direction and mode of this bibliographical research, however, was and is towards the collection, description and exploitation for text-critical text purposes of exhaustive repertoria of, so to speak, the positive external facts of the history of the book as a physical object rather than history itself. The classics of this first phase of scholarship range from the series of short title catalogues initiated by one of Bradshaw's most distinguished followers, A.W. Pollard of the British Museum, to the great treatise on bibliographical description of 1949 by the doyen of American textual critics, Fredson Bowers. Its actual history writing, on the other hand, has been essentially a matter of summaries of fact, which tend to remain unintegrated into general history. As a typical example, I would cite the chapters on the history of the book, British book trade, which H.G. Aldis, secretary to the Cambridge University Library, contributed to one of the monumental digests of 19th century positive scholarship, the 15-volume Cambridge History of English Literature. The next and still developing phase in the scholarly concern with the world of the book is the attempt to remedy this lack of integration into general history of traditional historical bibliography, while nevertheless retaining the bibliographical repertoria, the STCs and so on, as the in indispensable infrastructure. Now this phrase is dominated clearly by the French school of l'histoire du livre, and, which was initiated in 1958 by the now classic L'apparition du livre of Lucien Fèvre, and only Jean Martin, and now is reaching its climax in the four-volume Histoire de l'édition française, which I have already mentioned, edited by Martin and his younger associate, Roger Chartier. As is by well, now well known, the Histoire du livre is conceptually a dependency of the Annales school of synthetic history writing, which in turn originated in the pre-First First World War, École de Saint-Thèse, dedicated to combating the dispersive effect on the humanities of 19th century philology. And it did this by proposing inclusive and essentially synchronic, timeless models of the historical process in general, derived not from historians, but from pioneering sociologists such as Emil Durkheim and the geographer Videl de la Blache. From our point of view, the importance of the Histoire du Livre is its own synchronic model of the process of the book in history, 
This has been summarized, so far as it, its internal mechanisms are concerned, by the most influential proponent of the school in this country, Robert Darnton of Princeton, in terms of, and I quote Bob Darnton, an interactive communication circuit, unquote. The four main elements of which are author, publisher and bookseller, reader, and library, or archive, back to author. The neo-Marxist, or I think one should say post-Marxist tendency of the Annals school is shown in the external relating of the Histoire de Livre to general history in terms of mentalité, or socio-cultural hegemonies, preponderance. For example, the contrast, but the interaction between the elite book world of Paris Ancien Régime of the 17th and 18th centuries, and the popular and progressively more subversive book world of the provinces. The leading ideas in France, by which I mainly mean Roger Chartier, are now derived from a, the post-Marxist or Nietzschean theoretic, theoreticians such as Pierre Bourdieu. But a more strictly neo-Marxist tendency is shown in, the, shown in the British group surrounding Raymond Williams, whose long rep long revolution is still the only attempt at a fully structured, if highly summary, account of the history of the book and the newspaper in Britain. And the, the title of their chief journal being the aptly named Media, Culture and Society. I think I should at this point give a sense of the range of this enlarged new history interest in the history of the book and newspaper on the part of professional historians in Britain and America to make the point about the integration of the history of the book into general history. And I do so by citing just one or two of the now influential titles. First, as a direct consequence of the French concern with pop popular mentalité, we might choose Margaret Spofford's study of 17th century chapbooks in her small books and little histories, or more uh, widely known, um, Keith Thomas's use of almanacs in his uh, uh, Religion and the Decline of Magic. Then, if we turn to business history, one might cite J.H. Plum's essays on the relations between the 18th century press, in particular the newspaper press, and what he calls the commercialization of leisure and the birth of a consumer society. Then, in general political history, one might cite the epoch-making revisions of the Namierite view of the essentially private structure of 18th century politics by Plum, uh, done by, established by Plum's associates, John Brewer, now the director of the Clark uh, Library in California, Jeffrey Holmes, and William Speck, establishing against Namier the centrality of public printed controversy, and paralleled in the in American historiography by, for example, Bernard Balin's study of the intellectual origins of the American Revolution. And to go on, uh, just one further example from political history, I'd like to add from the 20th century the importance for the doyen of so-called high political writing, Maurice Cowling of Cambridge, the importance for him of newspapermen such as Rosamere and Horatio Bottomley. To return to new trends in scholarly interest in history of the book, we now have the most recent trend, provisionally termed the new historicism, and concerned to remedy the lack of what I might call inwardness, 
that is characteristic of post-Marxist work. For example, its lack of concern with the interaction internally, so to speak, of individual authors and individual readers with the text. I think it's interesting that Histoire de l'édition française has little formal discussion uh, of the series of great French writers preoccupied, almost obsessed with La Question du Lit, from François Rabelais to Stéphane Mallarmé. Now, deriving from the perception amongst French deconstructionists of what they call the constitutive nature of the written or printed word within the individual's consciousness, speaking a mouthful, I'm thinking of the, particularly of the work of the uh, Hegelian Derrida and his studies of Stéphane Mallarmé, this, this new concern with, again, as it's called, the interiority of the act of reading and writing has had the effect strangely enough, of bringing back into play, into the forefront of scholarly interest, the old philological interest, uh, concern with bibliographical repertoria. Uh, of the classics of the new historicism, I suppose the uh, best known, um, is the, um, the reconstruction, indeed the virtual reenactment of William Tyndall's doctrine and practice of Bible reading in Stephen Greenblatt's Renaissance Self-Fashioning of 1980 and in uh, recent discussions of text, a theory of textual criticism, the work of Don Mackenzie in uh, England, his Panizzi lectures entitled The Sociology of the, the Text, or Jerome McGann's uh, 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 Critique of Modern Textual Criticism, of, uh, published here in 1982-3, uh, are related uh, to the new historicism. But in the past year, two fine studies of the role of the printed text in English and American literature Help me make my point, I think. First is Alvin Kernan's print and technology, print technology and Dr. Johnson. And the second is a paper that Kathy Davison gave to the American Antiquarian Society, subsequently published as Ideology and Genre, The Rise of the Novel in America, which is a study of Charlotte Temple. Now, Al Kernan's demonstration of the constitutive effect of print on Johnson's whole identity as a writer, depends on a context that, and he says this, can only be established by the 18th century short title catalogue, by the appropriate repertoire of bibliographical fact. Professor Davison indicates her dependence on repertoire, uh, and I quote her, her dependence on two book carts containing all the editions of Charlotte Temple, which the American Antiquarian Society staff kindly brought down, arranged in impeccable chronological order. Unquote. She goes on to characterize uh, the prime evidence that is retrieval only from bibliographical repertoire in deconstructionist terms of, and I quote again, an overt and covert cultural agenda an ideological subtext that is encoded in the writing, publishing, reprinting, binding, titling, retitling, pictorializing, advertising, distributing, marketing, selling, buying, reading, interpreting, and finally, the institutionalizing of any text. Let me then conclude this first half of what I have to say by touching on the new trends in the worlds of research library administration and publishing that affect us in our construing the history of the book in Britain project. 
From the librarian's point of view, Professor Davidson's moments of truth while working not in her study but in the library of the American Antiquarian Society with her carefully provided cartloads of books is, as I have suggested, part of the great bibliographic tradition that goes back to the turn of the century philology. One recalls the librarian, A.W. Pollard, and the reader, Sir Walter Gregg, looking at each other I might say, with with wild surmise on the accession to the British Museum in the 1900s of the false Pavia Quartos and the consequent launching by them of the modern phase of textual criticism in terms of what they called Shakespeare and the new bibliography. In this country, for almost a century, dedicated bibliographic collections have been assembled by librarians and administrators in which scholars have been encouraged to live work and have their being in order to set up advanced study virtually overnight in areas where there was none. From the first research libraries independent of the nascent graduate university in the late 19th century such as Newbury in Chicago to the special collections of the rapid of the sorry to the special collections of the matured graduate schools of the interwar years such as the Houghton at Harvard or Clark at UCLA, to what one might call, I suppose, the closing of the research frontier in the 50s and the 60s. For example, in UCLA, the the development of the UCLA's rare book collections, as distinct from Clark, by uh, the Chancellor Murphy and Larry Clark Powell and Bob Vosper, or the setting up by the Chancellor himself, Harry Ransom, of the Humanities Research Center in Austin, Texas. The new trend in research librarianship relating to the history of the book, specifically, is the effect of the second phase within this context of the application of computers to the task of making these research collections totally or universally accessible to scholars. And by second phase, I mean no longer the computerizing of what we call in the trade universal bibliographical control of currently published material, but the control of the whole range of existing research material in, in libraries, uh, however scattered their, their actual locations, the control which, if I may now at last actually quote something from the history of the Book in Britain project, allows the examination of new questions in cultural history and at levels hitherto largely accessible. That's part of our uh, proposal to our funding agencies. The pioneering exercise has been, I really do believe, the 18th century short title catalogue referred to by Kernan. And as one of the first administrators of that project, permit me to put on record the fact that the British Library's initial motivation was not only the peasant-like, though necessary, concern to exploit its heavy capital investment in computer facilities in general, but to resolve one of the basic dilemmas of a national research library, which is to mend the inevitable divorce between, on the one hand, staff concerned with inward-looking in-house routine processing, and secondly, staff involved more directly with the world of learning, and thirdly, uh, both scholars and the citizenry interested in the book in the world at large. Thus, compiling the ESTC itself in the British Library has already produced original research by our staff, exemplified by the volume of 1982 called Searching the 18th Century, 
and by the subsequent reports by the same staff published in the newsletter Factotum. Arising from this, British Library staff will themselves be associated with the writing of the history of the book in Britain, and the British Library will itself substantially support the history as part of its general, and may I say unprecedented, policy of what you call outreach to the general public in the form of a centre for the book. A major strategy already adopted by the Library of Congress, as we well know, and about to be taken up by, other, by the other major research libraries in the world. Part of what I think one might call, quite seriously, a new Alexandrianism. As part of the momentum to what I hope I may call total online access to the textual world cultural heritage, generated by ret retrospective universal bibliographical control, research librarians are now planning machine-readable union catalogues and location registers of manuscripts, indeed of oral, as well as printed texts, medieval books, 16th and 17th century manuscript verse, and of critical importance for our particular project, book trade archives. As I have said, it has been the new trend among publishers, booksellers, and so on, to deposit, with or without financial consideration, their archives in research libraries, and equally important, to encourage their systematic, the systematic use of these archives by scholars that has been the sine qua non, at least as far as the history of the book in Britain is concerned. The reason for this new trend in the book trade is, in the first instance, clearly the apparent the need to dispose of bulky and inactive files when firms are taken over by the larger corporations and conglomerates. In, in, uh, a, a matter which I, I think, as I have said, one can think in terms at least of radical change, if not of apocalypse now. Indeed, I think the motivation of many publishers can be said to be part of this sense, if not of an ending, at least of radical change, which is also part of the wider current interest in and justification for the, the history of the book projects. Moreover, if the motive force for change within the history of the book in general, and not only now, at least in the West, China and Japan are another matter, if the, the motive for force for change has been essentially that of business and technological enterprise, witness the title of Robert Darnton's classic study of the 18th century, The Business of Enlightenment, then book and newspaper trade archives, as well as the actual product of the trade in the form of collections of printed books, however decentralized of necessity their locations, are the primary evidence for our field of study. Now, in my remaining minutes... Let me give a highly, perhaps excessively schematic abstract of the, in, this in, of the inclusive history of the book and text in Britain, so far, that is, as our very provisional thoughts on the project have got, in other words, based entirely on secondary material. But I've said already that authorship, publishing, reading, and libraries are best thought of as synchronically, together interacting to constitute, in Bob Darnton's phrase, a communication circuit. And diachronically, that's the point of view, look at it as a historical sequence, I've just begun to suggest that the main historical dynamics of the Darnton circuit are, on the one hand, changes in what Walter Ong calls the technologizing of the word due to professional and more particularly to business enterprise, such as the invention of the codex at the, the, uh, the end of the Roman Empire or of printing in the uh, 15th uh, century. 
And on the other hand, I now want to introduce changes in what Eric Auerbach once called the cultivated public. Both of these uh, 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 dynamics, uh, technological and the changes in the cultivating public, depend in turn on the interaction of what the French call the conjuncture between long-term general economic, social and political changes. And according to this scheme, the history of text in Britain is part of the part of the general history of Britain, from provinces of Europe through maritime empire to partner in world language plurality. And it can be construed in four epochs, Roman Britain, the medieval codex from script to print, the establishment and zenith of the hegemony of print from, shall we say, the foundation of the Stationers' Company to 1914, and fourthly, the challenge to the hegemony of print and its response from 1914 onwards. I'd like uh, to be a little more detailed, if I may, about the, uh, the first period and move more rapidly through the second, which I think will probably be more familiar to most of this audience. It is still, I'm afraid, very schematic. Roman Britain, then. As a province of the Roman Empire, Britain was part although an essentially remote and inert part, of a literary system which in terms of the above scheme was fully developed. In Rome, the literary scene with its professional authors and scholars, its libraries and bookshops, its publishers and its worldwide distribution of books was not unlike that of Europe in the 18th century, except for the absence of mechanical means of reproduction. It's a quotation essay by C.H. Roberts. In contrast to the provinces nearer to the metropolitan capital such as Gaul, However, there is little evidence so far, either documentary or archaeological, that Britain had any local authors or publishers. The only established Latin author born in Britain, Pelagius, seems to have spent his entire professional career in Rome and the Middle East. Moreover, the only direct mention of a literary public in Auerbach's sense, sense in Britain is the line in Marshall, and Britain is said to sing my verses. It's only said to sing my verses. After the withdrawal of the Roman presence, the system collapsed and had to be reconstructed, but with significant variations, by post-imperial Christian missionaries. At the same time, outside the Roman province, the remainder of the British Isles had experienced and continued to experience a totally different system. The pre-literate, so-called oral literatures of the Celts and later Anglo-Saxons, with their characteristic literary genres of praise poems, genealogies, sagas and the like. Documentary evidence being, in the nature of the case, absent, the system has to be defined largely by analogy with other oral systems, particularly present-day observable systems elsewhere in the world, particularly Africa and, and the Pacific. In contrast to the imperial Roman system, these circuits were multiple, decentralized, yet each was compacted, as it were, into virtual monoplasticity and stasis, to take the circuit, the readers, the clansmen, and the publisher, which will be the chief of the clan, are integral, simultaneous parts of both of the creative act, which was an oral performance of the author, the bard, and also of the archive, the collective memory, with which the author was simultaneously interacting. In an age of secular decline in the West, the inherent conservatism and compulsiveness of this system outlasted the Roman. Its 
texts, so to speak, endured to be transformed during our next epoch, the Middle Ages and beyond, by reprojection through script and print into a substantial element of the matter, as it has been called, of the imaginative literature of the British Isles, principally the Arthurian cycle, but also the Mabinogion, the legends of Cuculain, and their subsequent continuous reworkings by uh, script and print within the mode of what Northrop Fry called romance up to the present day. Yeats, for example. Tennyson. Next, I have to speed up now, the medieval codex from script to print. This second epoch may be summarized in terms of the gradual and by no means, com- yet by no means, com- and by no means complete assimilation of the oral into the reconstructed written circuit as the latter expanded from its initial monastic configuration from say 500 to 1200 through its scholastic configuration of the high middle ages 13th, 14th centuries into its emergent commercial configuration of the 15th and early 16th centuries and incidentally the beginnings of English literature as a going concern. In general the underlying dynamics of the epoch can be defined in terms first of two major changes in technology at the beginning the introduction of the parchment codex as opposed to the classic classical role and at the end the introduction of paper and printing and also secondly in terms of two major strategies in the cultural reconstruction of Europe and its offshore islands Britain and others at the beginning the empire and papacy of Gregory the Great and Charlemagne and at the end the independent monarchies and republics the late renaissance and the reformation so-called Tudor Revolution, to quote Geoffrey Elton. Now, with your permission, I will move straight to the second. I, uh, otherwise, uh, <laughs> it would take, uh, take far too long, if you will uh, uh, permit me. The further, to use Ong's phrase, technologizing of the word represented by the eventual transition from script to print was, like the transition from roll to codex, or later from print to electronics, essentially a response to demands from a cultivated but unstable public which the existing technology was unable to meet. The instability in this case, the late 15th century, uh, was due not, as in the case of, uh, of Rome, and Christianity, the revolution in thought and action which came about through the impact of Christianity upon the Greco-Roman world. That's a quotation uh, from Cochrane. But to the more long-drawn-out, less coordinated, but pragmatic and relentless laicization of thought and action which followed the failure of the scholastic clerical attempt to synthesize the transcendental with the secular, from the 14th century onwards. It was an aspect of the transition from what Dennis Hay has called Christianitas to Europa, a Europe composed of nations which became increasingly autonomous, not only politically, but also culturally, and then to, I quote Geoffrey Elton, to open out until the world was to all intents Europeanized. To continue with Dennis Hay, although by 1520 printing had become the normal method of circulating books, and in particular, although the canonizing even of contemporary vernacular authors by the printing of their oeuvre on or soon after their death had by then been established on the continent of Europe, 
Politian's Cose Vulgari, for example, were published under Satzio's editorship in the year of his death, 1494. In Britain, by contrast, the demands made by printing on the thin resources of capital and clientele available at that time had the effect of prolonging, if not positively intensifying, the marginality of our book trade in these respects vis-à-vis Europe until well into the 1530s. Thus, Caxton, mouthpiece of the London merchant patriciate, as Hans Barron has called him, like the manuscript entrepreneur in the 15th century, John Shirley, before him, was untypical of the local trade in his, Caxton's and Shirley's, comparatively ready access to adequate capital and clientele. The broadening of local capital resources and clientele which was necessary to produce the beginnings of a viable book book trade in Britain uh, and viable reading public and archive, had to await the Tudor revolution of the 1530s. This general reform, this general reform of church and state associated with the paternalistic regime of Henry VIII and Thomas Cromwell, by, by initiating the dominance of court, parliament and metropolis, set England on the course to eventual empire. Indeed, the restructuring of the British book trade, reading public and archive, can be said to have been part of the cultural aspect of that Tudor revolution. Printers such as Godfrey and Gibson and their associates such as Bertolet and Grafton were commissioned as an integral part of the Henrician propagandist organisation, producing a mass both of prestigious translations, for example the Erasmian humanistic texts or Greek classics and above all the great Bible that Thomas Cromwell ordered to be placed in every church, and also of the new genre of pamphleteering that was ideally suited to exploit the potential of printing for both effect, political effect, and commercial pro- profit. By 1534, government felt the local trade, British trade, was strong and viable enough for the legislation of 1484 protecting and encouraging alien printers to be annulled. As a consequence, so far as the emergence of a coherent, predictable reading public was concerned, Not only was political and religious self-consciousness and self-confidence evident in the acceptance of the break with Rome and the dissolution of the monasteries, but a book of contemporary poems, such as The Court of Venus, argues a literary self-consciousness that already anticipates the great Elizabethan flood, of which it is a major wellspring. Finally, the beginnings of the transference of the archive from the monasteries to a deprivatized royal library by commissioners such as Leyland and Bale, albeit fitful, is evidence that, as with the contemporary Bibliothèque du Roi of Francis I, at least the idea of the cultural nation, and later even empire, had been irreversibly established, however long and tortuous its eventual working out. The engine starts to really rev up at this point. The third and longest, uh, or perhaps the period most well known to this audience, we title, we might title, The Establishment and Zenith of the Hegemony of Print Within the English Language, Cultural, Nation, and Empire, from, as I have said, the founding of the Stationers' Company in 1557 to 1914. Now, this third epoch may be summarized in terms of the eventual, virtually complete assimilation of the oral and manuscript circuits into a print circuit that is inherently enterprising and expansive. Moreover, this latter circuit comes to pervade not only high, but also popular culture through the agency, first of ephemera, Margaret Spofford's and uh, Keith Thomas's uh, pamphlets, chapbooks, uh, almanacs, and then of the reprint, 
the serial and the newspaper. And it comes to do this not only in the cultural heartland of Britain, London, but also in the remoter provinces and at accelerating pace in the colonies both before and after their independence. The epoch ends I would say 1914, with a prospect of challenge to and indeed alienation from the hegemony of print as the dynamism, the sorcerer's apprentice sort of dynamism of its largely newspaper-led technology and enterprise uh, evokes the post-literate mass media characteristic of the later 20th century. And as the former colonies led by the United States progressively reverse the balance of power so far as the as cultural communication industries are concerned with the former mother country. At the same time, the shifts in the French conjuncture, shaping the epoch diachronically, may be thought of in terms of three phases, uh, mainly determined by the increasing secularization of the European complex of cultural political nations which emerged from, the medi from medieval Christianitas, if you remember Dennis Hayes' phrase. These European cultural political nations became increasingly competitive, but the succession of what historians call ascendancies, uh, though imperial in ambition, could never be more than short term. The phases, these three phases were, first, that of the residually clerical, so-called baroque, ancien regime, largely constituted by the successive ascendancies of first Spain and then France, over a still mainly provincial Britain and elsewhere, Germany, Italy. Then, following what Paul Hazard calls la crise de la conscience européenne, the more deliberately secular commercial ascendancy, overseas expansion and diaspora of Britain herself. Third phase is the zenith and then the crisis of the competing European empires that were stimulated by British world dominion and resulted albeit violently in the pluralist cultural political ecumene of the present century the first phase then the part that which we might term the partial establishment of the hegemony of print from 1557 to 1695 the end of the efficacy of the stationers company the phase of the dominance of the stationers' company. Now, during most of this phase, the emerging British cultural na nation remained provincial in relation to Europe. Whereas Baroque mercantilism, predominant during the period, greatly enhanced the cultural prestige of France, which had already been established in the High Middle Ages, come to that, it for long, in point of fact, till the 1650s, destabilized those British adventurers historians call them, in our case writers, even librarians as well as printers and publishers, who were involved in the final transition from orality and script to print within the cultural nation that was constituted by our post-Reformation gentry and merchants. In this respect, Shakespeare and the first classical phase of English literature, the age of Johnson being the second, the age of Wordsworth and Dickens being the third, the age of Henry James and T.S. Eliot being the fourth, Shakespeare and the first classical phase of English literature are evidence of the liberating effect of 57, and I'm now quoting from Don Mackenzie, filled two urgent functions, as an agency for the crown to police the press, as a trade association to protect its own privileges. The balance would shift and individuals defect, government would intrude and the stationers resist, but that initial complicity of interests created a single self-regulating monopolistic 
institution against which all political, religious, and commercial opposition was necessarily defined as radically subversive of not only government, but trade. And this, I don't want to anticipate, is uh, the Mackenzie's view of the importance of print in the English Civil War. Our actual narrative, I continue with Mackenzie, moves from a positive legislative act, a single positive legislative act to embody control in 1557 to a legislative lapse which effectively ends it in 1695. And the general context of the transition and its conclusion is the long-drawn-out, traumatic, and eventually pluralist religious, political, economic, and social Anglican settlement of 1689 and beyond, which at the same time establishes Britain's own provincial and colonial nonconformity, the nonconformity in its own provinces and colonies, um, within its uh, emerging cultural as well as political empire. And this embraces not only belles lettres, but scholarship and the arts, thereby establishing British autonomy in British book production and design vis-à-vis Europe and also uh, the positive entry and rise at least to parity within the European Republic of Letters of English literature, particularly with its reception of the Huguenot diaspora after 1685. The final securing of the hegemony of print within the British cultural nation, that is our second of these three phases uh, within this third period, has to be seen as an aspect of the Whig and later evangelical supremacy which followed the revolution of 1688-9 and which extended to the end of the Napoleonic Wars and which is marked by the steady replacement of, replacement of French by British ascendancy in the world at large, economically, politically and also culturally by 1815. At the same time, the print circuit becomes a distinctive estate within the cultural nation. In particular, the hegemony of print was at long last secured in terms both of the media, the virtual suspension of independent orality and script, and in terms of textual genre. The major new genre of this period, largely the 18th century, the serial essay, the novel, the children's book, and above all, perhaps, the continuously revised encyclopedia, ordering the whole canon of the arts and the sciences, emerge from print, and they emerge from print exclusively. The print circuit became fully articulated into a literary system through the steady professionalizing of author, publisher, common reader, in Samuel Johnson's phrase, library, and even, if you think of Sotheby's, antiquarian bookseller, from Grub Street onwards, through Samuel Johnson and his world of the book, to Wordsworth, Byron, and Scott and theirs. Further, the inherent dynamism of the print circuit began to, in Walt Rostow's phrase, take off in three respects. First, commercially, with the rise of the newspaper and magazine, what one might call the ephemeral modifications of the book, to parity with the book, especially in the provinces and colonies. And with the rise of reprints and the export not to put too fine a point on it, dumping of, increasingly, of the increasing surplus of books abroad, and the firm of Longman is particularly interesting here. Secondly, the print circuit begins to take off technically with the mechanization and industrialization of printing, collection, illustration, and binding. Thirdly, begins to take off culturally and politically at the end of this phase with the growing, what one might call, evangelism of print, both outwards to the colonies and also downwards to the emerging 
working class with, for example, religious and political tracts and with commercial advertisements. The final phase of this uh, middle epoch um, is the zenith and the crisis of print from 1815 to 1914. The the print circuit can be said to reach the peak of its effectiveness and dominance in the English-speaking world as a whole in the course of the 19th century, but began to falter and diversify in the opening of the 20th century, an aspect of the general climax and falling apart of the Victorian and Edwardian cultural empire. Now, this process is best exemplified by the sequence of major Napoleonic, if you'll allow the phrase, entrepreneur publishers characteristic of the epoch. At the beginning, Constable, Charles Knight, Richard Bentley in the middle, and Lord Northcliffe at the end, all highly sensitive to the steady massification, a phrase from Richard Altick, of the cultural nation and aggressively expanding the range of print in response to and as an integral part of this cultural massification. The radical amplification of the world of the book was also associated, it even directly provoked, a progressive institutionalization of the archive in the form of national libraries with effective legal deposit, and even, in due course, the institutionalization of the reader with the eventual rise to equality in the market of the public with the circulating public library with the circulating library and the parallel professionalization of librarianship. At the end of the period, there are foreshadowings of the alienation, even expatriation of the author and his high cultural milieu from the common reader and even from the publisher, Thomas Hardy, Oscar Wilde, and the very, at the verge of this phase, James Joyce would be examples. Parallel with this development is the growing interaction with the authors and publishers of the former colonies, Mark Twain and Chateau, Kipling and F.N. Doubleday, and the key emerging typical figures in the circuit uh, in this late phase would be the publisher's reader, one might think of Edward Garnett, and the literary agent, such as J.B. Pinker. I come to the the final epoch, The Challenge to the Hegemony of Print and its Response, 1918. In this fourth and current epoch, as an aspect of ecumenical mass democracy, English language textual culture has become further pluralized, both geographically as, following the United States, the circuits in the other former colonies, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, become increasingly independent from, yet competitive with, the former mother country, Rupert Murdoch, shall we say, and also they become pluralized formally as the non-print circuits, film, radio, television, become similarly independent and competitive with print. To moderate and manage disorder, the response in the world of print has been, on the one hand, to develop or improvise various multinational and multimedia publishing agencies or conglomerates and, on the other, to promote institutional libraries to predominance within the reading public. In short, I think one might say that to the cultural nation finally succeeds, if you remember my opening remarks about the Celts, the recompacted cultural, and to quote McLuhan, global village, and that we hope to offer as a sort of base for the John Tibbles to say what the crisis uh, uh, ultimately may mean. Um, 
In sum, I began by saying that the various national projects in the history of the book, the French, German, uh, ours, American, now underway, cohere together methodologically, and also, I must now add, in content. This is particularly true, clearly, of those histories of the book concerned with the so-called world languages, principally English and Spanish. There has been talk, and indeed serious discussion, of the feasibility of a world history of the book. And as a step in this direction, the UNESCO Culture and Scientific History of Mankind is even now being revised to take far more serious and detailed account of the history of the book as a major ecumenical factor than did the first edition of that work. A vital intermediate stage towards that goal would be centres combining primary evidence and scholarship relating to para-ecumenical para areas such as English language culture. And if the British Library in the UK might conceivably be one, are not the resources scholarly as well as documentary here in the US clearly another? Thank you very much. <laughs>